I just keep thinking about rivers lately. Rivers just don't flow in straight lines. Mm. They weave back and forth. And the goal is not placidity. The goal is not, okay, we're going to work it all out and everybody's going to be peaceful and happy yeah. and nice. That's not the work. It's, it's messy to be alive. It's messy to be in relationship and it's worth it. Welcome everybody to the podcast, Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Preble Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Relationships. Let's talk about it. And in this episode, peace begins at home. I have a conversation with David Lamont. David is an award-winning songwriter, musician, speaker, and author. And I've known of David for about 20 years. I'm a big fan of his music and saw him in past concerts over the years in Asheville and Black Mountain. And I've gotten to know more of another side of David's work around peacemaking through his book, World Changing 101, Challenging the Myth of Powerlessness. My wife and I recently saw David in concert, and I just love being around his presence. And I walked up to him after the concert and got his contact number and wrote to him to see if he wanted to have a conversation on my podcast. And I wanted to do it based on reading his book. To dive deep into what is peacemaking and how do we work with inner peace within ourselves, have that portrayed outward in our community, and especially, of course, in our home. And that's the conversation that I wanted to have, is how do we cultivate peace and what is that? Because I love one of David's quotes that he wrote in his book, and that is, Anger is an important place to visit from time to time, but a pretty rotten place to live. And we all know that we don't want to live in a home that's filled with anger. We want it to be peaceful. I hear it all the time. That's what a wish for people is, is to have a peaceful home. So let me tell you more about David. As I said, he is a songwriter and speaker and author musician, having produced 11 CDs and performed 2,500 concerts on five continents. He also suspended his successful music career in 2008 to accept a Rotary World Peace Fellowship, earning a master's degree in international studies, peace, and conflict resolution from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. And as part of that program, he also spent three months in rural Andhra Pradesh, India, working with a Gandhian development organization. David maintains a full calendar of speaking engagements and concerts and works with PEG Partners, the nonprofit organization he co-founded to support schools and libraries in Guatemala. He's also a consultant on peace and justice issues for the North Carolina Council of Churches, and he serves as the chair of the Nobel Peace Prize nominating task group for the AFSC, the Quakers. 
And there is so much more to learn about David. So if you want to do that, you can go to his website, davidlamotte.com. That's David, L-A-M-O-T-T-E.com. And you can find more on my show notes. So as I said, I just love uh, being around David, his concerts from the distance. And then when he came to my home, you can really feel his peace. And just being around him, I felt that resonance of peace. So I would say that those of us that are lucky to be in his presence knows that this is a person that has cultivated peace for many years inside so that he can help cultivate it outward in his community. And the one thing that I love about all of that is his beautiful humbleness to this, which I believe comes across in our conversation. So here we go. Peace begins at home with David Lamont. Let's talk about it. Well, I'm excited about doing this conversation with you because uh, this is something that's near and dear to me with peace and trying to really understand what it means like in my life, in the world. And it's so wonderful to have you here that have been not only studying it, but living it writing about it, singing about it. So thanks so much for wanting to do this. It's such a pleasure, Prepo. Thanks so much for making me welcome and being interested in what I'm thinking about. Really looking forward to the conversation. Mm. So we don't have to go in chronological order, but I'm just really curious, like, have you always wanted to venture into understanding peace and conflict resolution and creating that harmony around the world for yourself and for others? It's a lot to think about there, um, to think think back across one's whole life and, and think about where that came from. I think everybody ends up with some conflict in their life, right? And sometimes we handle that conflict really well, and sometimes we handle it really poorly. And sometimes the people around us handle it well or poorly. And I think as a child, I didn't like conflict. I didn't want it around. And so I my first understanding of peacemaking, I think, was a was a rather shallow one that I just wanted people to cut it out, mm. right? <laughs> and that's not how I understand peacemaking these days. But I think it's a pretty natural progression through human relationship to have the sense that we could maybe be doing this better than we're doing it. And if so, then it probably is worth our time to consider how. This is learnable and teachable, and we can do better than we're doing. And there are folks who, of course, kind of throw up their hands and say, look, you know, people are always going to be in conflict. There's always going to be war and violence. Always has been, always will be. That may be true. But the question isn't, can we fix it? The question is, can we do any better than we're doing right now? Mm. I think that's a more helpful question, yeah, right? right? A more realistic one and one that leads us to to healthier ways of being in the world. So that's the question I'm asking myself. Can I do any better than I'm doing right now? And can I maybe help the folks around me listening to their stories, sharing mine, seeing where the intersections are, what we can learn? That's a great question to ask even every day to ourselves. Can I do better today in, in, in some way without self-deprecating ourselves right. or the self-judgment? But is there something that I can do a little better? Because I know I ask myself, I usually use, can I be kinder? You know, mm -hmm. to me, kind is not about nice. You no. know, kind is, it has grace to it. And, 
you know, how can I be that way in my life, especially to people that I'm close to and dear with, because those are the ones that usually don't get as much of the kindness as other people that I see during the day. That's right. Those are the people we count on to be resilient. And mm -hmm. we, we, we put our weight down on the weight, on the strength of those relationships. So often the folks we love most are the ones who carry the weight of our stress and it's not fair, but it's real natural. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly live into that pattern for sure. Mm -hmm. I so appreciate your naming that difference between kind and nice because growing up in a Southern family, you know, those two yeah. things were not always distinguished. And I, I think it's really important to think about that. I, and I think there's an analogy, uh, an analogy in peace work because there's so many understandings of the word peace itself, right? Inner peace, outer peace, world peace, international relations, etc. And I think so often when people talk about peace, they're talking about placidity, a lack of conflict. Right. I just want peace. Just give me peace. Right. People just just leave me alone. <laughs> right. Kind of, right? Yeah. And that's really not where my understanding of peacemaking is these days. I think a lot more, I'm, I'm less interested in this utopian ideal, this static idea of achieving peace. That's not all that interesting to me. I don't think it's likely and I don't think it's a realistic goal. I don't think it's all that useful of a framework. What I am interested in is peacemaking mm. or peace building more accurately. There's a distinction to be drawn there as well, but, but the work of peace building is actually about approaching conflict in ways that are constructive rather than destructive. And I think the common understanding of peace building is that it's about avoiding conflict. It's about mm -hmm. moving away from conflict. I once had the extraordinary opportunity to spend a little time in one-on-one -on -one conversation with John Lewis, the great civil rights hero and the leader of SNCC, the, the student wing of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. And um, uh, needless to say, that was one of the great privileges of my life to get to just hang out and chat with him. In that conversation, we were talking about the fact that peacemaking requires stepping toward conflict, not stepping away from conflict. And I think that's largely misunderstood in our larger society. I think peacemaking is often perceived as a way to avoid conflict. And John Lewis said, look, conflict is very often necessary on the way to justice, which is a powerful statement. And then he followed up by saying, Dr. King used to say to me, which was already a mind-blowing <laughs> writing, you know, Dr. King used to say to me, sometimes you have to turn the world upside down in order to set it right. Mm -hmm. And that's true, Brito. That's profound. Right? Yeah. That yeah. is true. Yeah. But it's not the work I want to do, right. right? I don't want to step toward conflict. I'd much rather step away. Right. Yeah, especially being a Southern boy, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I like to be nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But that doesn't always get us there. And no. I think it's really analogous to your work Yeah, in relationship. We'd much rather not talk about it. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. What I tell couples, you know, let's, I say, let's get this straight. Conflict is there for understanding. That's why we have conflict. So it's okay. It's just that you got to do conflict well. It's You don't go from harmony to disharmony. And then not say anything, wait for a couple of weeks to slowly come back into harmony. You have to do the art of repair, yeah. which takes you deeper in the harmony. And so you have to go through what I call getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And when you can sit there, 
you know, whether it's, you know, like we practice in meditation or whatever, not scratch our nose, you know, it's yeah. like, let me just stay with this. If we could stay with it, but be curious and interested instead of concluding. Like I want, I tell people, be a, be an emotional journalist when there's conflict. Try to inquire. Don't just conclude. Mm. A, a journalist keeps asking questions. They want to gather information. But a lot of times, I think conflict, we're just on our stand and we need to convince or berage the other person for them to understand us instead yeah. of us trying to understand them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's really powerful. You're, you're making me think of, about a thing that I continue to wrestle with. I don't think I have clarity on this, but at one point in my life, at, at any rate, perhaps I'm still striving for this, though I'm less sure that it's possible. The idea of being sensitive has these two facets to it, right? I mm -hmm. want to be sensitive in the in the sense of being really aware, but I don't want to be sensitive in the sense of being easily injured. That's right. Of being fragile. Mm -hmm. And it can be quite challenging to be one without being the other. Mm -hmm. I don't have a I don't have an insight to yeah. offer there. I just, well, I'm just thinking, <laughs> you know, like when you said that, is like can we use sensitivity sensitivity to actually move towards somebody instead of a lot of people use their sensitivity to protect themselves mm. and back off mm. instead of disclosing their sensitivity of what they're feeling at the moment and that vulnerability because that vulnerability and sensitivity go hand in hand. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to look at the model of the civil rights movement, uh, what we generally call the civil rights movement, though the civil rights movement hasn't ended. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, but to look at that model with King and Rosa Parks and John Lewis and Carmichael and so many others, they chose quite intentionally and quite courageously chose vulnerability as one of their strongest means of affecting change. And what folks often don't know, unless they've dug a little deeper into those stories, what we didn't get in school is that, for instance, before John Lewis and his compatriots did sit-ins at the lunch counters in Memphis, they trained for a year every week on Tuesday or Wednesday nights, I forget. They worked with John Lawson for a while who trained them. In non-reaction? Well, not non-reaction, but non-violence, non which is okay. a slight, slightly different yeah. thing, right? Because non-violence is an active thing. It's not about passivity. There's this strange confusion there as well because it's an accident of etymology that the word passive and the word pacifist sound anything like each other. They don't have any common root words, none at all. Hmm. So the word passive comes from the Latin passus, which means to suffer, to endure. Hmm. And the word pacifist comes from pax, which of course is peace, and ficare, which is the fundamental action verb in Latin. I'm not a Latin scholar. My dad is, but I'm not. But uh, he taught me this years ago. So ficare is the the fundamental action verb like hacer in Spanish or faire in French. It's, it's the main action verb, right? Mm. So action is fundamental to pacifism. To be a pacifist means to be a peacemaker or a peace doer. Mm. It is literally impossible to be a pacifist and be passive. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. I, when I discovered that, I went, oh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and just like in, in your book, you talked about, you know, certain aspects of love and anger and hate, but like love 
it is not passive. It's just no. not a feeling. No. When I'm working with couples and I ask them, so tell me about, you know, why you're here or, or about your relationship. And they say, well, you know, we love each other. And I said, you know, I'd rather get that off the board because how you were just interacting wasn't loving, you know, mm -hmm. loving is verb. I, I give the analogy sometimes of, I can tell that plant over there, I love it, I love it, but if I don't water it, I'm not showing it love. So I like for people to get away from an understanding about the feeling as it opposed to being like the 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 active the activism of love, like yeah. a love activist. Yeah. In that way. I so appreciate that, Prepo. And I love the fact that you started this interview, this conversation with a, a delineation between nice and kind, because mm -hmm. I think there's so many subtle delineations that offer us insights. I'm a little bit of a word nerd anyway. Mm -hmm. I like words. But beyond that, it really shows us what we actually mean if we start yeah. to interrogate all these words. And all of these words have passive and active senses about them, right? So when you talk about hope, I may not feel particularly hopeful on a given day, but I can still choose hope. Václav Havel said, hope is not prognostication, it is an orientation of the spirit. In other words, hope isn't about what you think is going to happen. And it's also, you said, trusting in a process instead of optimism. It's not about optimism. Right. Yeah. Optimism is about believing that things are going to be all right. right. I'm checking the yeah. odds and I think it's all going to, I, yeah. you know, I'm feeling optimistic about this. Great. Right. Well, awesome. But hope isn't that. And I think we have a cultural narrative around what hope means right. that, to my mind, is a little bit, is a couple degrees off. Mm -hmm. And that is that hope is really cute. It's adorable when you're young mm. and you have naive ideas about people being nice. And then you get out in the real world and you discover that people are cruel and selfish and sometimes devious. And some of that hope wears off because it was naive to begin with, and you become yeah. a realist, right? That doesn't make any sense to me, that narrative, mm. because of the existence of someone, say, like Nelson Mandela, who spent 27 years in a South African prison because of his convictions, came out with the same words that he went in with. I have fought against white domination. I have fought against black domination. The ideal of a free and just South Africa is one for which I hope to live and work, but if need be, it's one I am uh, prepared to die for. Roughly, mm. to paraphrase. That's roughly what he said when he went in and what he said when he came out. So are you telling me that he was hopeful because he was naive about how cruel people mm. can be? Mm. No way. That holds no water at That's all, right. right? That's an utterly illogical statement. So there must be something more to hope. It's not just about, hey, I'm feeling hopeful about this. We can choose hope when there are no reasons to be hopeful because our odds are a lot better with hope. Despair leads to inaction. And we know generally where inaction goes. Hmm. Hope leads to action. And action may go any number of places. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be cool because we tried hard. Mm. It might not. But we got a lot better odds choosing hope. Yeah. I love that. What's coming up, just a quick little story, because I can feel it inside of, we had a baby die in birth about 20, 21 years ago. And right before we named her, 
the three of us, Sandra was th uh, three at the time, we, we wanted to agree upon the name. Mm -hmm. So we were watching Dances with Wolves one night, right? And I thought, wow, why do we have to come up with one name? You know, Dances with Wolves, Stands with Fist. So we were first playing with River, but then all of a sudden it came to me, River of Hope. Mm. And that was her name. Mm. And then she died in birth. And I'll tell you, David, like through that experience and what that's brought to me, I have had such an expansion of consciousness and understanding through that devastation yeah. in, in our life. I have understood or felt hope in many ways that I've never felt before. Mm. So for me, the death of a, a baby, of our child, and I can still feel hopeful was about acceptance. It was the reality of what is, not the illusion of what I could have, being a father of a of a girl or another child. No, the reality was what we had, but I still felt hope. Hope in grief, mm. to me, like didn't make any sense. But that just came to me when you were talking about hope, because I realized, wow, yeah, it's not that airy-fairy aspect of naivety of hope. Like there was a a digging in of a deep understanding of hope that I could only had in that, in that transformation. Yeah. I want to just speak my compassion. I'm sorry. Mm. That's it, grief is a long road. Mm. And I know that was a devastating loss. Mm. You're making me think of the Leonard Cohen lyric, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Mm. Yeah, that that devastation. It sounds like brought you gifts, and I, d I don't want to be yeah I, the, the I, most tremendous gifts, tremendous gifts. Yeah, I don't want to be at all dismissive of the the cost of those gifts. But. Yeah, but if we're open to it, the acceptance of life, then there's many gifts in those cracks of life. Yeah, mm. I mean, even I can't remember what it's called. If it's katsu, I can't remember. In Japanese, when a vase breaks, how they put gold mm, in between yeah. the crack yeah. to make that analogy of that's that's the gold of life is in the cracks, is in the brokenness. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful thing to honor that moment and that brokenness and carry it forward and even sometimes see the beauty in it. Mm. We were talking just before we started recording about... Um, the miracle of photography and how photography is time travel, right? Uh, a man named Tao Batisse pointed that out to me, a wonderful photographer, uh, said, when you take a photograph, it's like you're putting a thumbtack in that precise moment of time, and then you can carry it forward and you can revisit it when you want to. It's a miracle. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I'm wondering also... All of your experience, I know that what I read in your book of being in, in Guatemala and in India, you studied in Australia and I'm sure, you know, many other countries, how some of the work that you did around peace, how that overlapped or didn't overlap in actually what people were living in their own homes. You know, community peace is so important because I, I know for me as a, as a therapist, my own understanding is if I don't understand peace within myself, and really accept that within myself, then I'm not gonna have it with the people that's closest to me, with my family, and then therefore out in the community that's mm -hmm. just around me and then out in the, in the world. To me, it doesn't start outside. This centrifugal force or whatever, it starts within me. And I'm just curious of, 
any anything that comes to mind for you of what you saw in doing the work outwardly, but you were living with many people and their families and so forth. Yeah, it, that's a really fascinating topic to me. I, I find that the dialogue between inner peace and outer peace is a very interesting one. And I see it go a lot of ways. I'm, I'm sure you have known activist folks, sometimes folks who I absolutely agree with on the issues, but they just throw shrapnel everywhere they go, right? <laughs> they just throw shrapnel and it's troubling, right? And, it, and there's a lot of destruction, a lot of demolition and mm -hmm. a little less construction happening. And that's kind of illustrative, I think, of what you're talking about, of not mm -hmm. finding that inner peace at all. On the other hand, I have also known folks who take a different tack from me. Everybody does, right? But folks who say, you know, first I need to get right within myself and then I'll work on the world. Problem with that is that we never okay. finish getting right with ourselves. Yeah. So we never do the work. No. I heard that expression, only stakes get done. People don't get done, stakes get done. There you go. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I think there's real truth in that. And so... What I'm trying to learn to do, I think, at this point in my life is to bring my brokenness, to bring the beauty of my imperfection and offer that freely mm. and hope that it does some good when it is invited, when people make space for it. And that's a pretty different approach. Yeah. Right. So mm -hmm. that that question of, of inner peace and outer peace is complex and it's easy for me to lean either direction. I will say, though, in terms of talking about communities I've been in with a lot of community conflict and such, we're not without conflict here in our own community right mm -hmm. now. I'm aware of a couple of different big things going on in our community that people are getting really frustrated with each other about. And um, that's okay. That's how we find our way forward. But I just keep thinking about rivers lately. Rivers just don't flow in straight lines. Mm. They weave back and forth. And the goal is not placidity. The goal is not, okay, we're going to work it all out and everybody's going to be peaceful and happy yeah. and nice. That's not the work. Yeah. It's, it's messy to be alive. It's messy to be in relationship and it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Especially if we are able to know and be aligned in our integrity throughout it. I think that that's what is a cool process for me, not knowing, you know, how to do it. But if I, if I'm able to have some type of compass my own integrity, mm -hmm. whatever that means, which I have to define myself, yeah. then I can follow that instead of fitting the external into what I think the blueprint is. Yeah. yeah. I think there was, there might have once been a day when I stayed in my own integrity. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> but I, yeah. but it's, 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 a, it's a wobbly right. process. But the, to me, the beauty about it, I say it often, is the only way to know integrity is to be out of integrity because then you know that you strayed from integrity. That's yeah, the, you, how do I know you, if you, what integrity is until yep. I know, hey, wait, wait, I just I just lied to my wife about I spent $54 on a pair of pants and told her I was $30. Yeah. For what reason, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you feel the little hiccups on the edge of the highway That's and, right. and you know that you're straying off the yeah. path. Right? Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Yeah. I was thinking when you talk about inner peace that, you know, I was thinking, should I share this? I've shared it one other time in another podcast, but I'd like to just share it with you. And just before Xander was born, there was a time I, w I wasn't working. I was living off of savings when Rainbow and I just got back from Esalen after a year and we were pregnant and hibernating up in the mountains in Colorado. And I started to 
do all kinds of things like writing poetry and uh, doing my own little vision quests. And Rainbow was making uh, me my own clothes and they were kind of like Prince-like clothes. And she once called me her Prince poet, you know, and, and one time she called me Prepo in that Prince poet. <laughs> and nice. I did a little vision quest at a national forest right by our house. And the sound, the wind was making that, that sound. Prepo. Wow. And I came back after and I wrote a prose and it was called Peace Reflecting into People's Oneness. Hmm. And I remember looking at it and going, P-R-I-P-O, yeah. Peace Reflecting People's Oneness. I told Rainbow, I was like, I just finished reading Mute Message Down Under where a lot of the Aborigines, when they want to manifest something in their life, they name themselves that. If they want to learn how to play the flute, they'll call themselves flute. And then as they put it out to the universe and people are calling it, it's manifesting that energy. When they complete it, they find another name. And I thought, well, shit, I really want to know what peace is in my life. This is the time of my life I'm really trying. So I think I'm going to call myself Prepo. Nobody really knows what it means, but I'm going to do it. So I asked her to call me Prepo, a couple friends. And then I called my mother and I said, hey, my name is Stephen Lawrence Toplitsky. Lawrence, like, where did that come from? She said, oh, your great aunt. And I said, what about her? What attributes did she, she said, why are you asking me that question? I'm like, Lawrence is out. So I went down to the courthouse to change Stephen Prepo to Plitsky. Right before Xander was born, I said, all right, I'm going to have the guts. And I went and I flipped it. And I went up to the judge, because you have to do that. And the judge said, why do you want to change your name? And I'm like, I want to, well, I was thinking if, People really embrace who I am. And, and I just looked at him and I said, because I like it. And he looked at me and he said, what do your friends call you? And I said, Prepo, and, which they didn't at the time. And he said, name changed. Mm-hmm. I walked out there so dejected that I didn't speak my truth about mm-hmm. the piece and mm-hmm. called up a good friend of mine. And I told him and he said, hey, man, did I tell you I love you today? I said, no, man. Tell me. He said, hey, man, why don't you fucking relax? You just <laughs> fucking changed your name to Prepo, man. You didn't do Scott. Or... And I went, holy shit. I just changed my name to Prepo. So I've been Prepo for 26 years. And what's really interesting is I found out just about 10 years ago that my great-great-grandmother, her name was Prepo Chena. Wow. Isn't that pretty amazing? That yeah. is pretty amazing. Right, exactly. So Fascinating. Whether I was ahead, behind, or whatever. But I just throw that out to, to you, to now people listening, the vulnerability of that, of I started understanding more and more what peace was, was for me in my life and created in my family. And so I just wanted to share that story about inner peace and that manifestation. So it, it, we can do it in many different ways. You yeah. don't have to go out and change your name if you, if you don't want to. But for me, that helped. Yeah. yeah, that's a powerful story. Mm. Thank you for that. Thanks. Yeah. What I love about that story, one thing I like love about that is that your own understanding unfolds over time in there. You made the choice because it felt right. And over time, you came to understand why it was right all along, including this ancestor's name yeah. that came down to you that you didn't know about. That's, that's right. pretty powerful. Yeah. When people would ask what the name was, which I didn't, I, my last name is Toplitsky, so I, it's Ukrainian and Romanian. So I looked it up and kind of Slavic has a little bit of that. So I would just say, it's a Romanian. <sighs> and I didn't feel so much in integrity until 10 years later, my Romanian great-great-grandmother. Right. Her name. Amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. That's amazing. fascinating. <laughs> 
What a great story. Yeah. You have a 12-year-old son. I do. I, I have a son. Tell me your son's name again. Mason. Mason. Yes. Yeah, we named him Mason as we speak about the meaning of names. His name is Mason Bishop Lamott. We named him Mason because our hope was one was that he would be one who builds rather than one who tears down. Mm. So like a stone mason, mm-hmm. he's a stone stacker. Mm. And uh, he's he's living into that. He's a, He was aware of that. He knew why he carried the name he carried, even as a very small child. And I love that. His middle name is Bishop, which is my mother's maiden name. Mm. But I also kind of wanted to name him after Desmond Tutu. Mm. But I didn't really want to name him either Desmond or Tutu. He just wasn't <laughs> the, the right kid. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that you have been or are focused and want to cultivate peace within your family, within your wife and, and, and son? How does that show up for you? Yeah, you know, Prepo, I don't, I don't know that I have any wisdom to offer that you're not already carrying. And I, and I, I do want to bring the integrity of saying that I don't have it figured out. You know, we're certainly a real family with real conversations and some of them are hard, but goodness gracious, I'm grateful to get to go home to Mm -hmm. those two. And so what I'm trying to do is do a lot of listening and also owning my own mess ups and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, speaking that. And it's interesting when you see power dynamics, such as parental power dynamics with kids, when the parents don't feel like they should ever apologize, right? right? Goodness gracious, if somebody tells me again that love means never to having to say you're sorry, wait a second, love means being willing to say you're sorry, among other things. Over and, and over again. Over and over again, because we're going to keep messing it up because we flow like a river, mm-hmm. not like a street. So what I'm trying to do is be honest with my kid. We, we kind of learned somewhere along the way that there's wisdom in answering the questions that are asked, but not over explaining things right. if they haven't asked the question. Right. Yeah. And so we try to be really honest with our son about things and try to treat him with respect and listen to him and find out who he is rather than telling him who he is. There you go. Yeah. And, uh, it, it is such an extraordinary privilege to get to be his father here as we're speaking it's we've just passed father's day and it's a poignant and moving kind of thing for me i i wasn't sure that i would ever be a father and it's a it's quite an adventure Mm -hmm. yeah it is yeah i i absolutely yeah there's probably nothing in my whole experience in my life that has stretched me and and moved me so deeply as Mm -hmm. that experience and wanting to align myself and and taste myself in that way yeah. i i talked about in my podcast the the beauty i i had uh, my father died when i was 28 but we had a beautiful relationship in in many ways he told me he loved me every day he would kiss me never laid a hand on me never raised his voice almost all the men in my family were the same my grandfathers my uncles so i grew up around that and to feel the juxtaposition of receiving that as a son and now being able to do that yeah. I, as a father, that well-rounded circle of life is is just precious. Yeah, I'm uh, profoundly grateful to have shown up in the family I showed up in as well. When it comes to my mom and dad, there, um, and my siblings as well, for that matter. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, 
very, very grateful for that. And I think that gives us that advantage because many people haven't, you know, the trauma that people grow up in mm-hmm. really sets the tone also of whether it's going to be repeated or not. And that's not linear at all, but I'm so glad that I had the start that, that I did um, yeah. and not have to go through a lot of uh, trials and tribulations to figure it out. I knew I had a resonance of what I wanted to experience in my own family. Yeah, I've got so much left to figure out, but, I, but I'm grateful partly for the example, the pattern that, that I was given by my family because it extends to other things. And when you talk about apology, for instance, we're in this profound racial reckoning as a nation after so much harm done. In my family, if somebody comes to me and says, I need to talk to you. You hurt me really deeply. The healthiest thing I can say in return is probably not, no, I didn't. You're making it up, (laughs) right? The first thing I need to say is, let's sit down. Talk to me. Tell me what's going on. I will listen, right? And then if I find that I've hurt somebody really deeply, which my ancestors and myself have participated and continue to participate in many ways, in systems that deeply damage other people, right? And so if somebody wants to talk to me about that, even if they're super angry, my first job is to shut up and listen. And then my next job is to try to figure out how, if there's a way I can contribute to the healing, Mm. because there's a lot of healing to be done. And as you mentioned there, in terms of family histories, that stuff doesn't heal itself. You know, we've got, it's in our DNA that we have to shift it. Yeah. And we've got to be active in relationship to do this very painful work. Mm. John Lewis talks a lot in his books about redemptive suffering, the concept of redemptive suffering. And that's a slippery idea. And I think we have to be super careful with it because it's easy for people to start to tell other people that their suffering is redemptive. You know, that's a different thing from chosen suffering in order to be redemptive and not all suffering is redemptive right but there are things that can only be healed through through situations that are extremely painful and if i am really uncomfortable if i feel damaged by some conversations that i have to get through in order to hear somebody else's pain and to understand the ways i've hurt them that's redemptive suffering Mm -hmm. it has the capacity to be Mm-hmm. Right, We can maybe move things to a healthier place by being willing to hurt. Right. And that vulnerability is real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, you, don't, you don't get to heal without hurting. Mm. Wow. I like that. You don't get to heal without hurting. Yeah. I don't like it at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But that's feeling but the true. depth of, the, of our humanness if we allow that. Yeah. And not go back and forth about comparing experiences but right. really being able to acknowledge somebody's experience yeah. and be interested in their experience. Yeah. And I think what I see a lot of my work is that people don't want to stay there in witnessing and acknowledging somebody's hurt. They've got to come back. What about mine? Right. Or, and you did this instead of staying. And I'm like, Hey, we'll get to yours. Right. Let's just digest. Let's do this, this one at a time. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I've done some training in conflict mediation. I don't consider myself an expert on it, but I've had the opportunity to take some classes and, and experiment with that a little bit and show up in some, some conflict situations. And it is extraordinary the power 
of just being heard. I know you know Mm -hmm. this as a psychotherapist, but one of the things they really teach in mediation is that you really literally can't productively work on a solution to a conflict until you've blown the emotion out and until people feel heard. So one of the tools that they use in mediation that I suspect you've used in counseling is to have one party in a conflict speak their story to the other and have the other repeat it back to them to their satisfaction. Right, to their satisfaction. Exactly, to their satisfaction. And if they get it wrong, then they can correct them until they can say it back to them to their satisfaction. Not to say I agree, you might not even think this is true, but this is your understanding. Let me see if I can state your understanding of the situation to you, to the point where you know that I've heard you. That's right. right? Yeah. And if you do that and then switch and do it the other way, the amount of possibility that emerges mm-hmm. is just staggering. One of the things I I profoundly believe about piecework is that the number of options is not limited to the number of options we can see. Mm. And we want to show up to the negotiation with a solution and we just want to fight for that solution. That's right. right. But actually, if you show up in deep relationship, new possibilities emerge. And piecework always requires creativity because fight and flight come really naturally to us. And of course, there's freeze and fawn and on and on. But the main things are, am I going to be aggressive or am I going to retreat? And both of those are really built into our lizard brain, right? We've we've got this deep in us. To come up with something better than that Mm -hmm. requires creativity. And neither of those options is almost ever our best option. Mm -hmm. So I look at 2007. There was a Klan rally that happened in Knoxville, Tennessee. And these local activists in Knoxville showed up in full clown regalia. And they had rehearsed carefully in order to meet this Klan rally with a clown rally. So they called themselves the Coup, C-O-U-P, Klutz, C-L-U-T-Z, Clowns. And they went to meet the Klan rally and they joined in facetiously. So... So the clan is chanting white power and the clowns start chanting. They, they start acting like they can't quite understand what they're saying. And then they say, oh, I get it. This is a rally for white flour. And they pull out bags of flour and they have a big flower fight in the street. And this is very disruptive to the clan's thing, right? And it's neither being shouted out, which they kind of thrive on, nor being run from, which they also thrive on. Mm. It's this creative interruption. So they have the flower fight for a while. And then they said they'd kind of worked that gag and they said, oh no, wait, that's not what they're saying. They're not saying white flower. They're saying tight showers <laughs> and they start holding up a camp, fi- a camp shower and crowding beneath it. And then they said, oh no, it's not that it's white flowers. And they start handing out flowers to everybody. Right. And they're, people are doing what you're doing now. They're smiling. Right which is the last thing the clan wants to see people doing. Right. They're not being taken seriously because these ideas should not be taken seriously. Mm. And I've had some pushback in telling that story from folks who say, well, look, you know, you've got to take these folks seriously, but I have to ask from the most practical standpoint, what's effective, right? Right. 
Because if you scream at the screamers, they're amped up by that. That's right. If you let them stand, if you stay home, then their message stands unopposed. And I should say that not taking action is different from organizing a freeze out so they have no audience at all. Mm -hmm. That's a different kind of strategy. But just staying home and not doing anything is not a defeat of their cause, right? Right. But here was this really creative thing that these activists did, largely from a group called Mountain Justice in Knoxville, mm -hmm. environmental activists. And, and what happened was the Klan left an hour and a half early. They had the square reserved wow. for four hours and they left after two and a half hours because they didn't know how to respond. It was interrupted in a way that was effective. And interrupted in a visceral aspect because intellectually you could say, don't take it seriously. Right. But what people felt from what they saw and the smile that, that I had and what people had, that's a visceral aspect of not taking it seriously. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, it, and this stuff does amp up our, you know, in a very biological sense, of course, our adrenaline all flows and that kind of toxicity and hatred is really damaging. Right. right? So how do we heal that? And how do we interrupt it? Mm -hmm. Those are, those are really important questions. I certainly don't have all the answers to that, but but I do think creativity is a fundamental aspect of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And intention, you don't just wait and respond when something comes up. Like John Lewis and his compatriots training for the lunch counter sit-ins, they practiced dragging each other across the room by the hair. They screamed at each other, racial epithets and horrific things. So they'd get used to it. Mm. So they knew they could respond and they could keep their cool in the moment because they knew these things were gonna happen. So they trained with James Lawson for a year. Like and exposure therapy in that way. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very much that. Mm -hmm. But also um, tactic training, right. tactical training, right? The, yeah. How do you carry your body in that kind of situation? And very practical things like wear heavy shoes because mm -hmm. if you're being dragged, wow, that's really important, mm -hmm. right? Um, even on these hot days in Memphis, You'll see if you look in the old photos, folks are wearing long pants and long sleeves because if you're being dragged, that's going to work better for your body. Hmm. It's very real. It's very real. Yeah. That's amazing too because when I'm just thinking about how people are in their limbic system in, and I don't want to downplay any kind of violence in a home, but what other nations are going through um, and war-torn nations and you know, it's very different to, I know for me to feel hurt by my wife or a family member and having to listen to them as opposed to if I have to listen to somebody that killed my family members, yeah. you know, like right. it's, but there is a tethering to, to all of that in, in some way, the tethering to being, being able to be, you know, to, to tag on to that aspect of hope because mm -hmm. hope and the acceptance of the possibility of human transformation. Yeah and even hope to be heard and to be felt in that grief so I could touch somebody's horrific action so that they know me. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate your name in that prepo. And I, you and I talked earlier about having healthy parents in our lives growing up and how powerful that was for us. And that's not to be taken for granted. And I, I think as a person speaking for myself, I was dealt pretty much all of the standard privilege cards, right? So I, I have to be constantly reminding myself that I'm only seeing from my particular perspective. So what I try to do is really study and learn from people I admire 
who've had very different life experiences from me and let them teach me how I can be in the world. Um, because of course I don't get to choose to be anyone other than who I am. I just get to choose what I'm going to do with this. And when it comes to privilege, the kind of operating principles for me are that I, I've been given this extra privilege by a society that tilts in my favor. So the questions are for me, number one, what do I do with that privilege? Somebody just handed me a fire hose and there are a bunch of fires raging. So where am I going to point the water? Number two, how do I subvert the system that gave me this extra privilege? Because mm. it's problematic, right? And I don't want it to happen anymore. So how do I undo that? How do I subvert the system? And those are kind of guiding thoughts for me in that context. But I'm also just trying to do a lot of listening because mm. I know that I have a lot, of a lot to learn and it is, um, it would be quite reasonable in some ways for someone to listen to me and say, yeah, great. You're talking about peacemaking, but you never lived in a war-torn country, right? That's true. I've gone to some war-torn countries to, to try to show up for that work. But yeah, we only bring our own experience. So our obligation, I think, and our and maybe the path of wisdom is to to try to to learn and listen as much as we can from other people's experience. Yeah. And that's beautiful to know that we don't have to have identical or even similar experiences to somebody, but if we're coming and showing up as a human being and open to hear somebody else's, that kind of, that's a certain tuning fork that we're mm -hmm. putting out of a certain presence that allows people to now not fight against or have resistance against it. So yeah, even with the work that I do, there's times where I, I can't fathom and meet what people's experiences are. Mm -hmm. But if I can really hold the space with empathy and curiosity and be there with my humanness, yeah. um, that's what we all want. And it's healing. I mean, I, I think the energy we expend maintaining the boundaries is energy that can be freed up, <laughs> right? And, and so even when the stories are horrific to hear, human interaction is healing if we are able to really show up, as you say, with our whole selves. This weekend, I was on an international peace conference that was an online thing for 24 hours consecutively because it happened all over the world. So people were awake for different parts of it. And there were four teams around the world. And my team was working in the, on Turtle Island and the Americas and the Caribbean. And one of the sessions that I was a part of was talking about human trafficking in Mexico. And as is very important, it's very important to not sit around and talk about those kinds of things without those folks in the room. Right. Yeah. So the, there was a woman who had been trafficked and she told these stories that were just heartbreaking, but her resilience and her strength were astoundingly beautiful and inspiring to do the work. So it kind of circles back around for me to hope, which is the choice to keep doing the work. Yeah. Despair leads us to give up. Mm. If we can choose to be hopeful in the face of all that's messy, then there's possibility. Mm. Yeah. And I'm really glad you're out there doing this and that your presence has that energy of hope. There's a certain magnetism to your presence that I've always 
enjoyed even from seeing from afar when you've been on stage doing your beautiful talent of, of singing and, and playing music and but I want to just tell you like even this is our first real person-to-person conversation and my body likes you yeah, I feel <laughs> Thanks, really comfortable yeah. yeah yeah likewise this yeah. is a rich conversation I'm really grateful yeah thank you yeah well I don't want to end this but I'm, I know that uh, there is some time limits but I'm curious is there anything that you want to just put out to people of what you're what you're doing right now, some projects that you have, something that you want people to know. I'll get all that stuff of how to how to um, contact you and, and look you up and your book and your music. We'll we'll have that on on show notes. But is there anything that's yeah. that you're juiced right now? Thanks, brother. There's a lot that's going on just now. I'm uh, working on I'm, I'm getting ready to begin a rewrite, a revision of the World Changing 101 book, which came out six years ago. A lot's happened in the last six years. Mm. And so that's going to be a big project to rewrite that book because I think it's still, it feels like it's still speaking. It feels like it's worth putting it out again. So we're going to do that. And um, I did a TED talk a few years ago that is about music as a metaphor for peacemaking, not as a tool for peacemaking, which is a whole other conversation, but as a metaphor for peacework. And my plan right now, my vision is to do a sort of a coffee table book with some photography and very short chapters on each of the little pieces of that TED talk. Mm. So um, excited about that possibility. Mm. And that book will probably be called Harmony. Mm. So that's exciting. And I'm getting back on the road playing some music. I've been writing a fair amount in the pandemic. This has actually been the most prolific songwriting time I've ever had Mm. in my life. So uh, largely due to having this Patreon community that I, I promise them a new song every month. <laughs> so that keeps me on deadline. And that's been a joy. So yeah, there's there's a lot of fun stuff going on. Mm. And I'm, I'm actually, because I've been doing all that writing, I'm thinking about making a new album too. So ah, nice. uh, that, that won't be too far down the pike. Wonderful. So yeah, it'd be great to hear from folks if anybody wants to get in touch. Mm, great. Well, thank you so much for walking in this world, for spending your... Monday afternoon here with me and having this conversation. Well, I've learned things today and I've uh, been nourished. Mm. So thank you so much for the good company and uh, onward in the journey. Cool. And the muffins, we might have another one. Oh man, that muffin was good. (laughs) Thanks so much, David. Take care, people. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Peace begins at home. And I wanted to add this on because I realized this is being released on August 3rd, 2021. And today is my son's birthday. He's turning 25. So I want to say to my boy, man, happy birthday, Xander. Happy, happy birthday, my son. I am so grateful that you are in my life and that you have given me this gift of experiencing myself as a father and as a human being walking in this world, in this family with you and mom. I love our connection. I love the love between us and the openness. You were such a kind and compassionate, grounding and insightful person. Happy, happy birthday, my buddy. And hey folks, it's also because of Xander that you're listening to this podcast. He was the one that instigated and asked me to do a podcast several years ago. I kept stiff arming him and saying, no, I'm not going to do one. 
And then I realized, wow, this is a way that I could share my thoughts, my experiences, my beliefs around relationships to my son. And he can listen to it. He can have it as a legacy for his family. And so peace begins at home. So if this podcast is benefiting you, it's one reason for this is for my son. So if you all send out a deep appreciation inside your heart to him on his birthday today, I would so appreciate it. And before I let you go, I want to make an announcement that in the fall, I am going to be doing my first live Zoom couples workshop on appreciation. Yes, I believe it's going to be called The Power of Appreciation, The Key to a Successful Relationship. And I will update you when I know the exact dates in the fall. And you can always go to my website, prepo.com, on the Relationships Let's Learn About it page to learn more. Hoping you all are having some beautiful connected moments this summer, that you are finding peace in your life and peace in your home. And I wish you all my deep desire for you to experience as much as you can in that, in the moments of your day. Okay, everybody. And I do wish that you make yourselves a beautiful day. Relationships, Let's Talk About It, is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting PC of Asheville, North Carolina. For more about licensed counselor Prepo Teplitsky, visit prepo.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling or therapy, medical advice, diagnosis or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice. Mm-hmm.